months. Well, over the last few years, uh, research studies have confirmed what many of us suspected, that Christianity is on the decline in the United States. Unfortunately, as we look at studies across the United States, study after study has indicated that Christianity is not as prevalent as it used to be. And so I did a little bit more research last night even and discovered uh, some sobering statistics that I wasn't aware of. Uh, During COVID, we know that many churches closed their doors. But if you go back to 2019, the year before the COVID-19 pandemic, you'll find that 3,000 churches were planted in the United States, 3,000 new churches in 2019. That sounds pretty good, right? Sounds great until you realize that 3,000 churches opened, but 4,500 churches closed. 3,000 opened their doors, 4,500 closed their doors, and we know it only got worse during COVID-19. Churches were not getting the tithes and offerings coming in. They weren't meeting in person, many churches, and many, many more closed their doors. So this happens here in recent years, pretty much every year. More doors closed to churches than new ones open. In 2021, Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center published the results from their latest survey about Americans' belief in God and their claim to be Christians. And they noticed a sharp decline in belief in God and claims to being Christian when you look at the different generations alive today in America. So on the screen, I'll put this up for you. Uh, Notice that those that were born before 1945, sometimes we call that the silent generation, those that are in right now their 80s or 90s, 83% of them say they believe in God. You look at their children, baby boomers, those born between 46 and 1964, baby boomers, only 79% say they believe in God. Then you look at the boomers' kids, Gen Xers, that's the generation I'm a part of, those that are right now in their 40s and 50s. Among Gen Xers, only 70% say they identify as Christian. Among the Xers' kids, uh, those in their 20s and 30s right now, among millennials, only 57% identify as Christian. And another study has indicated that 43% of those millennials, those who are young adults in their 20s and 30s right now, 43% say they don't know, they don't care, or they don't believe that God exists. That's tragic. We look at our young adults, almost 50% say they don't even care if God exists. You look at the youngest generation alive today, it's called Generation Alpha. The stats are even more disappointing than the stats with the millennials. And so with each generation, we find fewer and fewer people believing in God, fewer and fewer people attending church. A stat I saw last night, this one surprised me quite a bit. The average church in America in the year 2000 was running a little under 200. Today, a little more than 20 years later, it's about half of that. That's how quickly the population has turned from being predominantly Christian, or at least claiming to be Christian, to becoming predominantly unaffiliated or not following Christ at all. Well, we'd like to think that with each passing year, the number of people who are getting saved is outpacing the number of people who are choosing not to get saved, but it's simply not the case. Simply not true, especially among our kids and our teenagers and young adults. It's one of the reasons it's so important for us uh, to have chosen to come to this location that is more strategic for reaching a whole lot of young families. And we want to do a better job of reaching young families because we have lost, to a very large extent, the younger generations, and we have to do a better job at it. Well, last week, we discovered that what's true in our day was also true in Jesus' day. As people are leaving the church and walking away from Christ in our day, they were walking away from Christ when Jesus walked this earth, weren't they? We looked last week at the end of John chapter 6, and we took a look at the 666 of the book of John. John 6, verse 66, that says this, From this time, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's one of the saddest verses in the New Testament. From this point on, many of Jesus' followers, even some that he had fed the day before with the five loaves and the two fish, Maybe even some that he had opened the eyes of the blind in their own families. Many turned their backs on Jesus and never came back. That verse marks a heartbreaking turn in Jesus' ministry. 
Over the past two, and two to two and a half years, Jesus had offered Israel nothing but good things. Jesus had taught them the word of God. He had explained the scriptures. He'd shared with them the path to heaven through grace and forgiveness that he could offer. He healed the sick and he opened the eyes of the blind and cleansed the lepers. At times, he even raised the dead. Jesus had given the people of Israel nothing but good. But how do many in the crowd respond to Jesus? They grumble and many of them turn around and walk away. So many of them responded by walking away, filled with unbelief, unchanged, unappreciative. As Jesus enters his final year of ministry, the crowds that gather by the thousands to hear him preach are few and far between. In some Jewish cities, the number of people who walk away from Jesus will begin to outpace the number of people who come to Jesus. And among the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, more and more of them will grow to hate Jesus. And they're going to set their sights on arresting him, shutting him up, and ideally killing him. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 7. If you're there, please say amen. amen. Here we are, verse 1 of John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and, and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Well, no one, they said, stays secret. Show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he also went, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast of the Jews, were, the Jews were watching him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, nah, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Amen? Amen. Well, John chapter 6, as you might remember from the last few weeks, was a very busy chapter. Jesus starts out the chapter by having compassion on the people. And then he feeds the 5,000 with those five biscuits and two sardines. And later that night, as his disciples are struggling at the oars out on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, in the middle of the night, walks on water and saves his disciples. He gets over to Capernaum the next day. He's teaching the crowd. They want him to feed him a, them another meal, but instead Jesus tells them that he himself is the bread of life come down from heaven. And then Jesus doubles down. He takes that metaphor a step further by saying, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. If you want any part of God, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, the crowd didn't like that too much. Many of them turned around and abandoned Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 6, Jesus turns to his 12 apostles and he asks them that sad question, do you want to leave also? Do you want to go where the crowd's going? And Peter stepped up and he said, to whom shall we go? You hold the words of life. We know and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. And so at the end of chapter 6, we find most of the apostles recommitting themselves to Jesus, but many of the crowd turning around and walking away, never to return again. Well, about six months pass between the end of chapter 6 and the events here at the Feast of Tabernacles, here at the start of chapter 7. Jesus is about six months away from the end of his ministry. He's about six months away from that final Passover where he'll be in Jerusalem, where he'll be arrested, where he'll be beaten, and he'll be crucified. So he's about six months before that point, six months left to go in his ministry. 
And we read here in verse 1, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Because Galilee was two regions removed from Judea, it provided Jesus with a pretty safe distance between him and those Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that he knew wanted to kill him. And so he stayed there in Galilee for a while. His brothers come to him, it says in verses 2 through 4, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. His brothers come to him and say, you ought to leave here and go to Judea. Go to that region around Jerusalem so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the crowd. Show yourself to the world. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was a a wonderful feast. It was one of the three required feasts that any good Jewish man was supposed to attend. You had to, by law, attend it if you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem. But regardless of where you lived in Israel, it was strongly encouraged that you attend. And so Jesus' brothers here are right on a couple accounts. They're right that if he is a rabbi, as he claims to be, and he is serious about his Jewish faith, he needs to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Any Jewish man needed to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. You're supposed to go for the Feast of Pentecost, and you're supposed to go for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you need to go, Jesus. You need to go. So they're right on that account. They're also right in saying that if you want to become a public figure, you need to show yourself to the world. But was that Jesus' mission to become a public figure? It wasn't his mission, was it? So who are these brothers? Who are these brothers that it's talking about here? It's a good question. Jesus' brothers came to him and said this. Well, it's kind of interesting. The Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of perpetual virginity. It's one of the doctrines taught around the person of the Virgin Mary. And so the doctrine of perpetual virginity goes like this. Uh, The Catholic Church teaches that not only was Mary a virgin when Jesus was born, but she, she remained a virgin for her her entire life here on earth after she gave birth to Jesus. And so we say, okay, well, that's kind of a nice theory or a doctrine. Is it based on Scripture? And the answer, honestly, is no. So if a Catholic priest is teaching this passage here today, he would likely say when it says Jesus' brothers said this to him, it's referring to Jesus' cousins or possibly his 12 apostles. And so we look elsewhere to Scripture to see if this is a sound interpretation. And one place we can go to quickly get the answer to our question is Mark chapter 6. If you go to Mark 6, verses 2 through 3, it says this. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so the whole reason Jesus' hometown folks took offense at him is because they knew him and his whole family. And four of his brothers are mentioned here in Mark 6 by name. Joseph, James, Judas, and Simon. Mentioned by name. And also it says sisters, so we know he had at least two sisters. And so the biblical teaching is very clear. Mary was, in fact, a virgin when Jesus was born. That's confirmed by Matthew and by Luke, that the Holy Spirit came upon her, and the child conceived in her womb was of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So Mary was, in a sense, Jesus' biological mom, but Joseph was merely Jesus' adopted father. But after Jesus is born, as the firstborn of Mary... Then Mary and Joseph, Scripture says, did come together and they bore other children, at least four sons and at least two daughters. And so to them, they were Jesus's, to Jesus, they were his half-brothers and sisters because Mary was mom, but Joseph was dad. He wasn't Jesus's biological dad, but he was theirs. And so Jesus is being confronted in a sense here in John chapter 7 by his half-brothers. Hey, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, interesting feast. Every time they went to the Feast of Tabernacles, the people of Israel could count on some exciting things to happen. 
So the Feast of Tabernacles, for one, it was a harvest festival. It was the final harvesting of the year. There were three harvest festivals, the three main feasts that the Jewish men were supposed to attend. Uh, We have Passover, the first one of the year. That was the barley harvest. Uh, Next, about 50 days later, you had the Feast of Pentecost. That was more of the wheat harvest. And then later in the year, September, October, this Feast of Tabernacles uh, was actually the fruit harvest, the final harvest of the year. So it was first and foremost a harvest festival, but secondly... It was a time to commemorate how God had saved the people of Israel, their ancestors, in their 40-year wanderings through the wilderness. And so just as their ancestors had lived in booths as they made their way through the wilderness, the people of Israel would come into Jerusalem and make these makeshift tents and, and booths and shelters to commemorate their ancestors' journey through the wilderness. Also, something really cool would happen every day. Uh, One of the priests would take a golden pitcher, he would fill it with water from the pool of Siloam, and he would go to a public place at the temple, and he would pour out the water from that gold pitcher, symbolizing how God had brought water out of the rock to hydrate his people in the wilderness. That's pretty cool. And every evening, these really large uh, candles would be lit in the temple courts. And so remember, the temple was up on a mount. And so throughout Jerusalem in this day and time where there were no street lights and there were no flashlights and there were no headlights on your, on your beamer, you know, they didn't have any of that. And so anywhere in Jerusalem, you could look toward the temple mount and it was lit up like a torch with all these tall candles every night in the eight-day Feast of Tabernacles. And so it was pretty cool. They went to celebrate this wonderful Feast of Tabernacles. But what does Jesus say? He says, I'm not going yet. (laughs) He tells his brothers, I'm not going yet. Notice verse five, it says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, this is an insightful little comment here. Maybe there was some sarcasm in their voices. You you say you want to work miracles. You you say that you can heal the sick and, and cleanse the lepers. Well, go show everybody, Jesus. Go get them, tiger. We're right there with you. It seems they didn't believe in Jesus. And so they really, if you're honest, they really give Jesus some shoddy advice here, right? Some pretty terrible advice. Just go into Jerusalem on the first day of the feast and say, ta-da, I'm here. Let's start working some miracles so everybody can see me. That's terrible advice. That's terrible advice. And we ask the question, if they were his own flesh and blood, in a sense, his half-brothers, why would they give him shoddy advice? And the answer is, because they did not believe in him. That's made clear in verse 5. They gave him bad advice because they did not believe in him. And so that really presents us with a wonderful principle that I don't want you to ever forget. And here's the principle. If you desire to do God's will in God's timing, remember this, unbelievers give terrible advice. Please never forget that. If you need to make important decisions and you want to make those decisions in God's timing, do not seek the counsel of non-Christians. Really bad idea. So it kind of goes like this. If you decide to go to Starbucks later today, and you've been told by all your friends, hey, those new refreshers they've got at Starbucks are really, really good. If you find out that the barista is an atheist, go ahead and ask her for opinion about which is the best refresher. Go ahead and ask her. Because ultimately, in the long run, it doesn't matter which dang refresher you buy today, right? It's an insignificant decision. It has no moral bounding to it. It has no life impact to it. So in these piddly little decisions, when the waitress comes by and, hey, what do you recommend? Or, you know, what's the best beverage? Or this, that, and the other. Ask whoever that has any sort of knowledge what it. But when it comes to making important decisions that actually matter, Make sure that you're seeking the will of believers. Make sure you're seeking godly counsel. There's so many decisions we face in life that we need godly counsel. Should I buy this house? Should I change jobs? Should I go to this college or that college? Which a career should I pursue? Should I accept that promotion? How should I handle my finances? Who should I marry? How many kids should I have? What school should I send my kids to? There are hundreds and hundreds of decisions that are important and impact our lives and the lives of others. By all means, make sure that you seek godly counsel when making decisions that actually matter. 
And really it boils down to this. If you want to make good decisions consistently, it really isn't rocket science. You need to make sure that you seek godly counsel from these three sources each and every time. Number one, seek the counsel of the Holy Spirit through prayer. I hope you don't buy homes and sign on the dotted line without praying about it first. I hope you don't accept a job or a promotion without praying about it first. I hope you don't decide how to handle your finances or who to enter a relationship with. God forbid that we enter a marriage without actually praying about it first. When you make important decisions, I hope that you pray about it because the Holy Spirit is our counselor, right? He is our teacher living inside of us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is right there inside you if you're a Christian. So don't push him aside when you're making important decisions. Seek his counsel. Secondly, seek the counsel of Jesus Christ from the word of God. Amen. We talked about this last week when we study the word of God and we hide the word of God in our hearts. Who are we hiding in our hearts when we do that? We hide the word. Did we forget last week, people? We eat Jesus by eating the the Word of God. Remember that? It's like, oh, well, the light bulb went off last week. I think the light bulb done died in the last week. So when, how do we eat Jesus according to John 6? How do we eat His flesh? How do we drink His blood? By eating and drinking the Word of God. And so if you want the counsel of Jesus, and I sure hope you do, you've got to be eating and drinking the Word of God. Amen? we got to take that inside. So that's your second godly counselor and your third godly counselor. Make sure there are Christians in your lives who are a little bit older, a little bit wiser, ideally have gone through some of the same decision-making processes that you're going through with that decision you face. Seek godly counsel and the expertise and experience of other Christians. If you will be consistent in using these three counselors, to your advantage when you are making an important decision, I'm telling you, you will make more godly decisions more consistently. Seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Seek the word of God, Jesus' counsel through his word, and seek the counsel of other believers. Well, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus tells his brothers, I'm not going up to the Feast of Tabernacles yet because the timing's not right. How many of you have discovered that God works on a different time clock than you do? God works on a different time clock than I do. I want certain things done yesterday. And so often God says, yeah, I'm going to do it, but not yet. I'm going to do it in my time. Remember, a day to God is like a thousand years. So God has a different time clock than you do. So they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you need to go now. First day of the feast. Ta-da, here I am. And he says, no, the timing is not yet right. Jesus hadn't come to set up a physical earthly throne in Jerusalem. That's what his brothers are talking about. They had a worldly view of Jesus if he was some sort of Messiah doing these kinds of things. And he wasn't going to set up a physically earth, a physical earthly throne until his second coming. That wasn't the purpose of his first coming here. Jesus came to destroy sin. He came to destroy death. He came to blaze a trail of forgiveness and grace and blaze that narrow road to heaven. That was his God-given mission at his first coming. So is Jesus going to ride a white stallion into Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles? No, he's not going to ride a white stallion yet. One of these days he will, amen, with his sword drawn. He will at his second coming, but not at his first coming. And so the timing was off. And besides all that, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were waiting to arrest and kill Jesus. So Jesus wasn't going to walk right into their trap on the first day of the feast. So according to verse 9, Jesus stays in Galilee while his brothers start their journey to Jerusalem. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus wasn't far behind. He waits until they leave, and then he goes a little bit afterwards. Look at verse 10. After his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Ooh, Jesus was a little sneaky here, it sounds like, right? He's a little sneaky. Was he wearing some glasses and a funny nose so no one could recognize him? Maybe he had the cloak over his head so they didn't recognize his cool hairdo with the wavy brown locks that we depict in the paintings of Jesus. One way or another, he was disguising himself. He's being a little bit sneaky here. Uh, maybe he had the cloak over his head and joined a caravan filled with people that wouldn't recognize him. I don't know. But one way or another, he makes his way to Jerusalem from Galilee and the people don't know he's in the crowd. There's no mention of his apostles here. So seemingly he was going alone without his apostles on this occasion. Well, meanwhile, the feast begins. 
We read in verse 11 that the Jews were watching for him. When it says the Jews in the book of John, it's almost always referring to the Jewish leaders. And so those Pharisees, uh, those priests, those teachers of the law, they were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Where is that Jesus? And so they're looking for Jesus on the first day of the feast. They don't see him. Evidently, the crowds that had traveled to Jerusalem from Galilee were on the lookout for Jesus too. And there were a a lot of people there from Galilee there for that feast, and there's a lot of chatter among them. Some of those uh, pilgrims from Galilee there for the feast in Jerusalem were saying, yeah, Jesus, I don't see him, but he's a good man. He's a good man. And then others from Galilee were saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think he deceives the people. And so among the crowds that were coming into Jerusalem for this feast, there were all these different opinions about him. It was a hung jury. They couldn't come to a consensus about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Some were convinced he was innocent. Others were convinced he was guilty. But regardless of what their opinions were, they noticed that when they mentioned Jesus in the hearing of those Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders got really uncomfortable. Now, it becomes clear in the upcoming verses that this crowd didn't understand the extent to which the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. They didn't know they wanted to kill him, but they did know whenever they mentioned Jesus' name, they got really uncomfortable. So regardless of whether they thought Jesus was the best thing since sliced bread or they thought he was some imposter, regardless of their opinion, they kept their opinions largely to themselves so they wouldn't stir up the Jewish leaders. And that's where we pick up in verse 14. Here in John chapter 7, it goes on to say, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. The Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast. First day of the feast, the Jewish leaders are looking for him. Remember, they were gunning for Jesus. You see, you go back to chapter 2 when Jesus had been in Jerusalem early on in his ministry. He went into the temple courts and he saw the money changers ripping people off. And he saw the merchants ripping people off. So remember how Jesus responded. He took a cord and he made it into a little whip. And he starts whipping all the people in the temple courts that were ripping people off. He overturns the tables. He chases out the money changers. Doves are probably flying everywhere. And so those Jewish leaders ask him in John chapter 2, what sign will you show us to prove that you have the authority to do all of this? And remember what Jesus said. I'll tell you, I'll give you a sign. You tear down this temple and I will raise it back up in three days. Of course, we know in hindsight he was talking about his body. He'd be crucified, killed, and would raise from the dead three days later. But they thought he was talking, of course, about the temple. And so that was strike one. They didn't think he had the authority to do what he did, driving out the money changers. Well, a year or two pass. Jesus is back in John chapter 5. He goes poolside to the pool of Bethesda, sees the man there that's been a crippled for 38 years, and he heals the man's legs. For the first time in 38 years, he's able to stand on his own two feet and walk. Jesus says, arise and walk, take your mat with you. You're not coming back here. And the Jewish leaders see that man. They get upset because he's walking with his mat on the Sabbath. The man says, well, it was Jesus that healed me. So they start yelling at Jesus. Jesus now was healing a guy on the Sabbath. Obviously, that's work. You can't be working on the Sabbath, so you can't be healing a guy on the Sabbath. That was strike number two. Jesus, in response to the Pharisees there in John chapter 5, claims to be the Son of God. They didn't believe he was the son of God. They thought that was blasphemy. That was strike number three. 
So as Jesus is coming to the Feast of Tabernacles here, it's just six months away from him being arrested and crucified. These Jewish leaders are gunning for him. In their mind, three strikes and you're out, Jesus. We want to arrest you. We want to shut you up. And if everything works as we're hoping it'll work, we're going to make sure you're dead by the time we're through with you. First day of the feast, those Jewish leaders are looking for Jesus. The crowd from Galilee is looking for Jesus, and there's no Jesus. Same thing happens on the second day of the feast and on the third day of the feast, but somewhere around the fourth day of the feast, about halfway through that eight-day feast, Jesus appears. He takes off his glasses and his funny nose, takes the cloak off his head, and he walks into the temple courts and begins teaching the people. And it's very interesting, the reaction of those Jewish leaders who hated Jesus, their reaction in verse 15. As Jesus is teaching, they're listening in. Obviously, they can't arrest him and crucify him right there. There's too many people listening to him. It's a public place. And so they're just listening. Verse 15, they exclaim, How did this man get such learning without having studied? In other words, how does Jesus know the Old Testament Scriptures so well? He knows the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He knows the prophets. He knows the books of poetry. And honestly, he can teach circles around most of the rabbis who spent years and years in rabbi school. How can Jesus know the Word of God as well as he knows it and teach it as well as he teaches it? And he hasn't been in rabbi school for a single day. It would be like us seeing a, a pastor today and say, wow, that guy knows the ancient Hebrew and he knows the, the New Testament Greek. And he knows all of the theology and all the ins and outs of the deeper theological truths of Scripture. How does he know all that stuff? He never went to seminary. He never spent even a single day in Bible college. How can he know all that stuff and teach so effectively without any formal training? And Jesus responds in verse 17 by saying this powerful insight. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Huh. What is Jesus saying? Jesus, first of all, is pointing out that he doesn't have a master's degree in theology or a Ph.D. in theology, but neither does God the Father. Right? And God the Father taught me himself. He taught me himself. In fact, everything that God has wanted me to say, I have said. Nothing that comes out of my mouth is not fully blessed and endorsed by God the Father. In fact, if God the Father was here right now, he would say the exact same thing that I'm saying. Well, what does Jesus mean in verse 17? Well, I believe William Barclay answers this question really well. He writes, Only those who do God's will can truly understand his teaching. That is not a theological but a universal truth. We learn by doing. It is the same with the Christian. In the Christian life, we learn by doing. If we wait until we have understood everything, we'll never start at all. But if we begin by doing God's will as we know it, God's truth will become clearer and clearer to us. We learn by doing. Say that with me. We learn by doing. We learn by doing. Tell someone next to you. We learn by doing. That's true, isn't it? It's a marvelous little insight. We learn by doing. So if you don't completely understand everything that God wants you to learn in the Bible, how do you learn more? Well, you start by living out what you already do know. Whatever you know up to this point, start living it out. If you, under, if you understand you don't have a full grasp of all the truths of Scripture, you know I haven't completely wrapped my mind around how the Trinity works. I haven't completely understood end times prophecy. The last thing you should do is go join a monastery. Don't go hide in some convent or some monastery somewhere until you learn more. If you do that, you're isolating yourself from the world. Jesus Christ wants you to impact the world. Amen? Don't go to your bedroom, lock the door, and just hide in the corner for the rest of your life because you don't think you know enough. What you do know, live it out. Amen? We're going to spend the rest of our lives learning the deeper insights of the Word of God. If we wait until we learn it all, we're going to be dead long before we ever start living it out. So we got to live it out. I love being around new Christians that are excited about their faith. They know next to nothing. They just know, man, they were messed up and Jesus saved them, right? 
And so sometimes you have the opportunity to listen to them sharing faith, uh, the faith that they have in Christ with their friends. And so they'll share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're scratching our heads thinking, eh, that's not exactly right. But they're doing their very best with the little bit they know. They're sharing Christ and they're excited about their faith. And they're leading people to Christ left and right. And as seasoned Christians, sometimes we look at that and say, well, if I was sharing Christ with that person, I would say things a bit differently. I would go into some of these other truths, not just the simple truths. And, and we might do things differently. Sometimes new Christians, man, they don't have much tact. They'll just go up to any stranger, start telling them about Jesus. We say, well, I would wait for the perfect moment. I would build the relationship first. And we've got all these wonderful theories that we come up with as we've been Christians for a longer amount of time. But bottom line, that baby Christian is sharing what they know. And have you noticed how God blesses that? It may not be perfect. But God sure blesses it. What a wonderful example. We need to walk in obedience, living out what we already know. When we walk in obedience to Christ's commands, two things will happen over time. Don't miss this. Two things will happen. It's not immediately, but over time. Number one, you will understand God's word more and more. You'll understand God's word more and more. So if you don't understand all of God's word, don't worry about it. Live out what you do understand. Amen? Because most of the time in Scripture, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So there's a good chance you've got a good grasp on the main things because you have a main, you have a pretty good grasp on the plain things. And so live out what you know, and as you live it out, God will reveal more and more of His Word to you. And there's a second blessing. Over time, Jesus will prove to you that He is the Son of God. Amen? So Jesus here in this verse, verse 17, says, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So in other words, you live out what I am teaching you and you will get the crystal clear evidence that you're looking for that proves that I'm exactly who I claim to be. I am the Christ and the Son of the living God. What a beautiful thing. When we walk in obedience to Christ's commands, he reveals more of his truths to us and he reveals more of himself to us. We have to walk in obedience. Once again, Jesus is making it clear that he isn't going rogue. Everything he does is exactly what the Father would do. Jesus made that clear to the religious leaders back in chapter 5. Back in John 5, 19, Jesus said, Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. A little later in that chapter, in verse 30, he says, By myself I can do nothing. And here in John seven eighteen, Jesus makes it clear that he does not speak on his own. Everything he says is exactly what the Father would have him say. So it bears repeating. Everything Jesus does is exactly what God the Father would do if he was here. God concarnate. God in the flesh. If the Father was here in the flesh, he would do exactly what we see Jesus doing. If God the Father was here in the flesh, he would say exactly what we say, hear Jesus saying. So Jesus, between chapters 5 and 19, is making it clear to the Jewish leaders, and he's making it clear to the crowds in Jerusalem, everything I do, the Father would do exactly the same way. Everything I say, the Father would say in the exact same way, at the exact same time. You see Jesus, you see God. Jesus brilliantly points out that that by their own interpretation of the Sabbath laws, they're breaking it worse than he is. If you look at his last few verses here, it's pretty remarkable how stinking intelligent Jesus is. (laughs) He's a genius. Did you know that? Shouldn't surprise us he created the universe, but he's a genius. And so they're saying our, our first, let's see, would have been the second strike they had against him. That second strike from John 5. You healed a man on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that. You are breaking the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath. Notice how he brilliantly responds to him here. He gives an example of how the Jewish leaders and teachers break the Sabbath day themselves. And the example he gives deals with circumcision. You see, there's an Old Testament law that says a baby boy has to be circumcised on his eighth day of life. So if a baby boy was born on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, that was day one. What would be the eighth day of his life? The following Saturday, right? So your eighth day of life would be a Sabbath day if you were born on a Sabbath day. 
And so what did the rabbis and the Jewish leaders say? You have to circumcise your baby boy on the Sabbath day if he was born on the Sabbath day. Isn't that work? Pulling out that flint knife and doing surgery, is that not work? They knew it was work, but they said that's okay. To do the circumcision required work. Moms, wouldn't you agree that after the baby boy is circumcised at eight days old, taking care of that baby that doesn't understand why he just had this painful surgery with no anesthesia when he was eight days old, he's going to be screaming for a long time, right? Moms, wouldn't you agree that's a lot of work, taking care of that baby on the Sabbath day after he's been circumcised? So it's work before he's circumcised. It's work to do the circumcision. It's work after the circumcision. And Jesus says, you guys are perfectly fine with that kind of work on the Sabbath. And he seems to imply in here when he talks about healing the whole man, he seems to be implying that circumcision is a form of mutilation, a form of physical mutilation. Now, he's not telling the Jews they shouldn't circumcise. That was an Old Testament law. Jews were supposed to circumcise their boys. It was the sign of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And so he's not saying the Jews shouldn't do that. Thankfully, we live in the freedom in Christ. We don't have to do that today. If Christian parents choose not to circumcise their boys, they don't have to has no bearing on your salvation, has no bearing on your kid's salvation. It's a choice. But in that culture, Jesus is not saying don't circumcise your boys, but he is making a very, very intelligent point. You say it's okay to physically mutilate part of your baby boy on the Sabbath day, but are saying that it is not okay for me to heal the entire man on the Sabbath day. How crazy is that? It's okay to mutilate but it's not okay to heal. It's okay to deal with part of the body, but it's not okay to deal with the entire body. The Sabbath day is a day of mercy. It's a day of God moving in merciful and gracious and amazing ways. How crazy are you to think that you cannot heal a man on the Sabbath day? Well, I'm sure the Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus pointing out that little tidbit. And so, you know what? He already had three strikes against him now. They were really really upset with him. Seems clear that those in the crowd had no idea how much the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because notice how they blurt out, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus had just pointed out the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. They said, ah, you're demon-possessed. Now, did they literally think he was demon-possessed? Maybe some did, but this was kind of hyperbole. It's an expression. It would be tantamount to, I preach something, and you start yelling out from the crowd, Ah, you're crazy, Pastor. Man, you're, you're just paranoid. There's no one trying to kill you. There's no one persecuting you. And so that's basically what they were saying here. Jesus, you're paranoid. There's no one trying to kill you. But the Jewish leaders knew the truth, right? The Jewish leaders knew they were trying to kill him. And Jesus knew the truth. He knew they were trying to kill him. But it's clear that those in the crowd were pretty naive. They didn't know the extent to which the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted Jesus dead. Jesus ignored their naive insult. And he continued speaking the truth that the religious leaders desperately needed to hear. Well, we'll pick up there next week. And in closing here, I'll share with you three life lessons that we can pull from this great passage. Life lesson number one, true obedience requires you to do God's will in God's timing. Premature obedience is not true obedience, and neither is delayed obedience. That's true, isn't it? If you are told by God, I have a plan for you next year, and you do that plan today, that's disobedience. But I obeyed what God told me to do. You didn't obey in his timing. You have to obey his will in his timing. More times than God saying, I have this in mind for you tomorrow, more times than that, God will say, there's something I want you to do right now. And if we say, not right now, I'm too busy, that also is disobedience. I was sharing with the first service. Some of you have heard me share this story before. It's sad, but kind of funny at the same time. Back probably 15 years ago, before they built the Roy Rogers in and out when I got a hankering for a double-double, I had to go over to Main Street. And so I 
went for many years with my wife to the main street in and out there by the freeway. And one day I was in there, I was eating my hamburger and I was enjoying it. And I look across diagonal seated uh, in a booth across from me by himself was a man, probably middle-aged. And I just had this sudden kind of quiver in my liver, kind of that yearning, that, that prompting from the Holy Spirit, go and talk to that man. And I was bashful. I don't like just going to talk to strangers out of the blue when they're sitting by themselves. Maybe he doesn't want company. And I felt like God was telling me, go talk to that man. And so I bowed my head and I said, Lord, I don't know if that's you telling me to to do that. I tell you what, I need a sign. If I open my eyes and I see the man drop a French fry, I'll know that you want me to go see that man. And so honest to goodness, I open my eyes and I look over at the man and there's one French fry underneath his table. So I needed a follow-up prayer. I closed my eyes and say, Lord, I'm not sure if that French fry was there already. So when I open my eyes again, if he drops a fry, I'll know you want me to go to him. And I open my eyes, and that single fry was still there. And the rest of the time that man sat there, I never saw another fry drop. He left. And to this day, I have no idea what that man was going through and what God wanted me to say to him. But I missed my opportunity. So often God will say, I want you to do this and I want you to do it now. Obedience, true obedience, is obeying God's will in God's perfect timing. Life lesson number two, people will always hold many different opinions about Jesus, but believe and live your life by this truth. Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. People have all sorts of theories about Jesus. He was a good man. He was a great prophet. He was a heck of a guy. And we saw a few weeks ago that those are all illogical conclusions about Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. There's no doubt. It's crystal clear. He claimed to be the Son of God. So if he claimed to be the Son of God and he really wasn't the Son of God, he can't be a good teacher. He can't be a heck of a guy. He can't be a great prophet. He can't be any of those things because he claimed to be the Son of God. There are only three logical options. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he actually was Lord. He was lying through his teeth. He was crazy as all get out you know he thought he was god but he wasn't or he actually was who he claimed to be the christ and the son of the living god and so you've got to make a choice there if you're not prepared to say that jesus was lying through his teeth and you're not prepared to say he was crazy should have put him in a loony bin get the paddy wagon for jesus because he was out of his mind if you're not prepared to say that you really only have one logical option left he actually was King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Amen? He was Lord. So no matter what crazy, illogical ideas people around you have about Jesus, you live your life by the truth that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Don't allow anyone with their crazy ideas of Jesus to sway you from the truth or living out that truth. Finally, life lesson number three. If you want to understand God's will, begin by doing God's will. You will learn God's word By living God's word. Amen? Amen. Say that with me. If you want to understand God's will, begin by doing God's will. You will learn God's word by living God's word. It's often been said it's easier to steer a moving car. In the old days, they used to say it's easier to steer a moving ship or a moving boat. How many of you used to drive cars with no power steering? You know what I'm talking about. You let someone borrow your car and they're parked on a downhill and so they turn the wheel, that front wheel, into the front curb and you go to start that car, you're not going anywhere until you start getting ready to crank that wheel back to the left to get away from that curb. It's a workout steering a car that's parked that doesn't have power steering. And God thinks the same thing about steering you when your feet are planted in cement. You've got to be moving. You know a little bit, great, live it out. You learn a little bit more, wonderful, start living that out. And as you move in obedience to God's commands, once again, he will reveal to you more of the truth of his word and will reveal to you more of himself, but you got to get moving. I don't know God's will for my life. That's okay, do something. There's certain things you know he wants you to be in church. 
I'm going to stay home until God tells me what his will. No, don't stay home until he tells you what his will for your life is. Go to church. You know you're supposed to do that. Study his word. You know you're supposed to do that. Be in prayer every day. Find godly counselors. You know you're supposed to do that. I don't know what ministry is right for me. Who cares? Do something. Bring some clothes. Hand out some bulletins. Help out here, there, everywhere. You do something, and I'm telling you, as you do something, God will reveal the specifics as you are moving. It's a beautiful truth when it comes to steering a car without power steering, and it's a beautiful truth in God's kingdom. Church, let's get to moving. Let's do something, and God will give us the specifics as we move. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for this glorious teaching. Open our minds and hearts to all you want to unveil from your word today. Some of us may go back and reread this passage. Others of us may go back and look at those message notes. And you'll give us some aha moments, some things that we didn't learn over the last 30, 40 minutes together. But you reveal as we go over it a second time. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that I've studied the word of God all my life. But even as we're going through John, there's certain things I'm learning I never knew before. And some things I'm learning that I had forgotten and forgot I once knew. But you're so good, Lord, in revealing what we need to know, what we need to learn, what we need to be reminded of at the perfect time so that we can walk in obedience to your commands better and better and better. Help us to be salt and light in our world and to be a blessing to those around us. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We love you, Lord. Thank you for standing strong against the attacks of the leaders who came against you. Thank you for continuing to speak the truth. Thank you for continuing to do what you were called by God the Father to do, even when many in the crowds were turning around and abandoning you. We love the example you set for us, Lord Jesus. Help us to follow in your footsteps. And I pray if there's anyone here who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that they would confess you as Savior and Lord, that they would give their lives to you, coming to you and saying, Lord Jesus, please forgive me, for I am a sinner. Wash me clean. Forgive my sin. And I promise to follow you every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're here today and you need prayer, or you're here today and you need to make a decision for Christ, maybe you've accepted Christ but haven't gotten baptized, we'd love to talk to you about that. Whatever that prayer need or decision may be, we've got Caesar up here and Yolanda. You let us know if we can pray for you. We'll be here as long as we need to to minister to those needs. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we hope you'll stop by the canopy table out there and grab your first-time visitor gift, our way of saying thank you for visiting this week. Remember, next week, there is an entrance fee. What is it? Yeah, bring a bag of clothes, if at all possible. We want to really bless the rescue mission by filling that truck. We've got a great month ahead of us. Uh, We've got the rescue mission next week. The week after that, my mentor from Hope International University. And at the end of the month, I'm really excited. The last Sunday of the month, we have another guest speaker. One of my buddies, our missionary that we support in Thailand and Burma and southern China. This guy's amazing. Speaks and operates in about 11 different languages and dialects. Even ministers to the long neck ladies in Thailand that put the rings on their neck every year. And their necks look like they're this long. Even ministers of that tribe in Thailand. So Joel Kopong will be here. Uh, This will be his last stop before flying back to Thailand. And so we're excited for the month of October. It's a great month of ministry. We're so glad that you're here. Invite a friend or family member to join you next week. They'll be blessed also. God bless. Thank you. Good God Almighty.